Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Director of Communications and Programs here at the CIC. Um, on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, uh, our director, Father Charles Trulos, and our co-sponsors, the Bush uh, School of Business with the Catholic University of America, it is my pleasure um, to welcome you for tonight's event. Um, and for those in person and online, um, Jay Richards is here to join us to talk about his new book, the Human Advantage, the Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. I'd now like to hand the mic over to Phil Brock, who will be giving uh, Jay's formal introduction. Thank you again and enjoy the lecture. Welcome everyone, uh, my name is Phil Brock. I'm the Assistant Dean at the School of Business Economics, the Bush School of Business at Catholic University. My pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Jay Richards, uh, who is a research associate professor with us at the Bush School. Jay is the author of many books, including uh, New York Times bestseller, Infiltrated, in 2013, which covered how the progressive activists were using uh, the wake of the financial crisis to control our lives and our financial wealth. And also another New York Times bestseller, Indivisible, in 2012, co-written with James Robinson, and I think is still one of the best looks at what it means to be a Christian and kind of live a unity of life between your personal spirituality and, and political philosophy. His 2010 book, Money, Greed, and God, won the, won the 2010 Templeton Enterprise Award and will be released a 10-year anniversary revised edition uh, next year that we're all looking forward to. Beyond politics, Christian ethics, and the economy, Jay has written extensively as broadly as on the environment and, and, and even the political philosophy of J.R. Token. Beyond books and the print media, Jay is the executive editor of The Stream, which is sort of a Christian Huffington Post. If you're not following The Stream, uh, you should be. Uh, more recently, I've been working with Jay as he has produced and anchored a pilot half-hour TV show on EWTN entitled A Force for Good, which profiles Christian businessmen and women and delves into the, the issues around the role of faith in business. I first came to know Jay kind of virtually uh, when I started teaching uh, an undergraduate course 10 years ago on entrepreneurship at Catholic University. I would use the documentary The Call of the Entrepreneur, in which Jay appears several times as an expert. It was through this virtual introduction that I could see that Jay had what I would call that Novakian trait, uh, after Michael Novak, who most, a lot of us follow at the school, um, that ability to communicate complex interrelationships between faith, science, politics, and the economy in ways that common folk like me could understand. Um, all of this, I think, has prepared Jay to be the perfect commentator on this revolution of smart machines. This topic is not just one of economics and technology, but gets at the heart of what it means to be a person and what is the true meaning of work. So without further ado, I give you the Bush School's true human advantage, Jay Richards. Thanks so much, Phil. Well, it's great to be with you. And the, the, since this is a new book, I was telling my, my friend Tyler, I haven't actually figured out how to explain it short, briefly. I, I can do it just in about an hour, but we're not going to do that tonight. Fortunately, they're actual copies of the book, so I don't mean to be shameless. But if you say he didn't really justify any of his claims, I try to do that actually in the book-length version. But what I really want to do tonight is just to give you an idea 
about what I think is at stake, what I think are both the, the perils and the opportunities of the information economy. I really wrote this book in some ways as a response to almost the entire literature on high technology, on automation and robotics. And let me, I'm going to sort of summarize the literature on this right now. So half the books or so say this, that in the next five to 20 years, something like half of the American workforce is going to be put out of work. Robots are going to uh, destroy uh, certainly the blue-collar sector, but machines, smart machines, artificial intelligence is going to wipe out a lot of the white-collar sector. It's going to be a disaster, and so the government needs to give everybody a universal basic income to solve it. All right, so so that's the sa- that's the dystopian side. All right, the utopian side says that in the next five to twenty years. Robots and artificial intelligence are going to wipe out most of the American workforce. Most of the jobs that we're doing now will be taken over by smart machines. And it's going to be awesome. So that's, that's the other side. So this is going to happen, and it's either a disaster or it's going to be a wonderful utopia because we won't have to do hard work anymore. And I don't know what we'll do. We'll just sort of hang out like those people in Wally and that chip, you know, getting ever, ever weaker and our bones getting <laughs> ever less dense or something. That's sort of the weird consensus. So whether you look to McKinsey or you look to Oxford University's study on this, that is what experts tell us, is that the machines that we're now developing are going to replace much, if not most, of what most human beings are doing now. It's going to affect different sectors of the population in different ways, but it's happening. So there are a couple of questions here, I think, that are really important. But my view is that both of the sides of that argument that I've given you, though one imagines itself as utopian, is actually dystopian as well. That a vision in which people literally do not work I don't mean toil, I mean work and create value, I think is ultimately a deeply disturbing vision. And so if this is actually true, I would think this is going to be bad whether we're starving to death or not. Um, And I think for spiritual reasons, and I just thought of this um, uh, just today from uh, the encyclical by John Paul II, uh, Laborum Exorcens, he talks about work. So this is an early encyclical. This is before... His, his uh, 1991 encyclical, Centesimus Honest, which I think, in my own opinion, is the, the most lucid treatment of economics of, of any papal encyclical. But So this is 87. This is before that. He's talking about work. And here's what he says. He says, work is a good thing for man, a good thing for his humanity, because through work man not only transforms nature, adapting it to his own needs, but he also achieves fulfillment as a human being and indeed in a sense, becomes more a human being. So we, of course, as human beings, we're created with a particular nature, made in the image of the creative God, and yet by working, we become more than we were at the beginning. And so remember, God commands us, commands Adam to till and to keep the garden. He commands Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply before the fall. So this is a part of our creation mandate made as creatures in the image of God. The fall makes work toil. It makes it sometimes futile, but work itself is not an expression of the fall. And so any situation in which a massive segment of the population literally has nothing to do um, is ultimately a dystopian vision, whether poverty exists in the future world or not. So um, I don't think this is true, but I think that the challenge is serious. Um, In the book, like I said, there are a good 20 books making this argument in the last few years, but one that's especially lucid and pointed is a book by a tech entrepreneur named Martin Ford uh, called The Rise of the Robots. And in this book, he sort of distills the basic argument. Here's what he said. 
says the shift now underway will ultimately challenge one of our most basic assumptions about technology, that machines are tools that increase the productivity of workers. Instead, machines themselves are turning into workers. So his argument is that you could say, you know, anyone that knows economic history could say, look, you could make this argument at any economic inflection point. You could have said in 1776, 95% uh, of the population is living and working on farms. You could sort of imagine a future with a steam engine in which some small percentage of the population won't work, will be just a small percentage will be needed to work on farms. And imagine most of the population is out of work. Of course, that's not what happened. You had disruption. Uh, but today, it's a, we have about 1.5% of the population that lives and works on farms feeds everyone. That didn't leave nothing for anyone else to do. What people did is they did other things. The argument is that this is somehow fundamentally different from these other inflection points. So that now, rather than enhancing our work, our machines are literally going to replace us. My, I'll, I'll start with my conclusion, and it's essentially this. Don't buy it. Um, do not buy this. And I'm going to talk mostly about the kind of what an, what an information economy is like, how it does in fact differ from, from other stages of economic development. But behind these arguments, every single time, is a very specific metaphysical and anthropological assumption about both the nature of technology and the nature of human beings. So if you think that we are machines made of meat, to quote a famous robotics professor, that our brain maybe is the hardware or something, or our mind is the software, and our body is the hardware, we're ultimately determined just by the laws of physics, and we ourselves are machines, then it seems quite logical that if we design machines that are ever more sophisticated, that run uh, ever more quickly, eventually they're going to literally outpace us, and they're going to replace us. And it, it follows from the fact that we're machines, so there's no reason not to think we couldn't make machines that replace us. If, on the other hand, you think that organisms aren't machines and that human beings in particular are not machines, then you're going you're gonna to think, well, yeah, we may make machines that do a lot of the things that we do, but it, they can't replace us because we're not machines. We're something else. We're something that transcends whatever a machine can ultimately do. And so there ends up being this kind of almost theological dispute in the background that very rarely surfaces. And so you get this slippage when you're talking about artificial intelligence between what the specialists call weak AI on the one hand and strong AI on the other. So weak AI is just what you encounter every time you do a Google search. So it gets better and better and in some ways eerier and eerier how good Google searches are at anticipating what you're looking for. Nevertheless, no one thinks there's a mind back there. There's no conscious agent, right, with a subjective first-person uh, experience choosing for you. What Google actually is doing is it's calling the intelligent decisions of millions and billions of people every day who ask a question and then select an answer, and then we, that gives Google a little bit of data, it gives the algorithm a little data to figure out, okay, this is what people are looking for. But notice that it's a hybrid system of a sophisticated algorithm with a global network drawing on information from actual intelligent agents. That's crucial. So it, it, it mimics more closely all the time what intelligent agents do. Strong artificial intelligence is the argument that once computers get fast and powerful enough, they basically bec they become conscious. They become conscious agents. Now, I know you're thinking, 
every movie I've ever seen about this subject does that. Well, of course, it would be a really boring movie, right, if it was just a machine. I mean, this would be, imagine a two-and-a-half-hour movie about the Star Trek ship computer. Not data, the ship computer, right, which is just basically a glorified Siri. Um, this would not be an interesting movie. So every movie ever made about smart computers and robots, they always become conscious because it would be boring otherwise. But that's, that's science fiction. There's no more reason to think, based on what we know about computing and about robots, that when we make these things fast and strong enough, they're going to become conscious agents, than to believe that if you make a tractor big and strong enough, it will become an ox. They're fundamentally different kinds of things. The type of computation that's going on inside computers, there's no reason other than just presupposing metaphysically that humans are machines, so it must happen, to buy this leap to strong artificial intelligence. So that's in the background, and it almost never gets argued. And so at the end of the book, I finally, it culminates in that, and I think you can make completely public arguments based simply on what people know about themselves for the falsity of this idea that we're machines, certainly for the falsity of the kind of materialistic assumptions that are in the background. Now, I could make the argument in theological terms. I could argue this as a Catholic, but I think if you can persuade someone just of this, that they are a person, that they exercise creativity and freedom, that they know what freedom is, they know what it means to be a free, conscious agent, that materialism must be false. And you can actually quote materialists who tell you this. It doesn't make sense that you could have an agent that would move physical things around in the material world if ultimate reality is ultimately nothing but blind matter in motion. And so, in other words, the thing that all of us know most directly, namely that we're persons, itself contradicts the materialism that lies at the, the base <laughs> of the strong artificial intelligence program. So you don't even actually, what you need is kind of sanctified common sense, I think, to make the argument. You don't actually have to make the argument in an explicitly theological way. But theology, trust me, and atheology are in the background of this debate, uh, uh, whether anyone likes it or not. Now, I do think, having said that, that the general diagnosis about what's going to happen in the next 20 years is basically right. That a large chunk of what we're currently doing is going to be done by machines. And in fact, we already have the technology, for instance, for long-haul trucking. So in the United States of America, in many states, the number one job for men is still long-haul trucking. Now, that's not true in Washington, D.C. It's not true in Virginia. But, you know, out west, that's the number one job uh, for men, if you sort of look at the statistics. We already actually have the technology for long-haul trucking, which we already have cars that do this in Seattle and in San Francisco. Long-haul trucking in comparison, right, just driving on the highway basically, is much, much simpler to do. And so I think it's highly likely that that is going to be generally automated. I think many of the jobs that you sort of imagine only humans can do are going to end up being done by machines, not necessarily with no humans involved, but in the sense that far, far fewer, fewer numbers of people will be needed to do that particular job. Now, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, though, because you're probably thinking it's going to wipe out all the manual labor jobs. That's not actually the case, and this isn't what anyone's predicting. Um, if you think about it, what, if, what are the amazing things we've gotten machines to do? 
Well, remember in the 90s, we got a machine that could beat Garry Kasparov at, ch at chess. We have got a machine much more recently in 2011 that beat the two reigning champions of Jeopardy at their own game. I think that was actually a much more impressive feat because it wasn't simply sort of obviously reducible to mathematics. Those are, those are brain things. Those are replacing cognitive capacities. You know what we don't know how to do? We don't know how to make robots that can do anything that a competent three-year-old can do with his hands. The kind of computational resources required to say, oh, this is, this is a roll of toilet paper, this is a glass of wine, this is a pen, this is a can, all the feedbacks involved in there, we don't have robots that can do that. We have robots that can do one thing very well over and over. This is called Moravec's paradox. And so jobs that involve complex bodily movement that require know-how rather than just know that, techne in the Greek, the kind of skilled trades, those jobs are actually the most resistant to automation. And I think there's actually an interesting dynamic right now in that people are becoming more and more interested in goods that are made by the skilled trades. Um, and so there's current estimates that, in fact, there may be as many as 4 million jobs in the skilled trades that are going unfilled right now in the United States simply because no one's trained to do this. So if you think, oh, it's going to wipe out just manual labor and, and not the sort of uh, cognitive work, don't think that. What it's going to do is it's going to basically anything that can be automated will be automated. So if you're doing a highly repetitive job that's cognitive or a highly repetitive job that's in, in a factory setting, that is the type of work that I think is, is in trouble. Now, any economist will tell you, and I make the same argument, it doesn't mean that the net number of jobs is forever gone. That's not how economies work. In fact, since the first man hit together two flint rocks to light a controlled fire to cook some meat, um, human beings have been, this is what economic growth is about, is figuring out ways to do more with less. And so every type of technology that's an innovation is, in a sense, going to make a previous way of doing something, a job, obsolete. But that doesn't leave us with nothing to do. It just means ultimately that we're going to do other things, that, things that nobody's doing right now. Now, you know what the problem with that argument is? The seen and the unseen. We will see the jobs that are lost. We'll see the jobs that get axed, right? That factory job that gets automated. We don't see the jobs that are coming because we, in fact, have no idea what they are. Right? Now, if somebody's able to actually predict what people are going to be doing 20 or 30 years from now, you'd know who they would be because they'd be a trillionaire. This, we don't have this capacity to, to look into the future. What we have is the past, and we know that the same thing has happened many times before. And so I think what we need to worry about, rather than literally being replaced, is simply the real challenge of the information economy, which is not the end of work, but the accelerating pace and change, the disruption that's much, much more rapid now than it was in any other change. I, I described uh, the, the shift from, the, say, the agrarian to the industrial economy that happened in the United States from, it depends on when you started, but let's say started at the American founding. Uh, and it wasn't complete until actually, I mean, it's still not complete. As long as there's still someone doing agricultural work, there's still somebody doing that. Nevertheless, uh, the, the American dream, if you will, that defined people in the 19th century, which is to own a family farm, that did, by 1950, that did not transfix Americans. What transfixed most Americans was owning a home in a city or a suburb. Um, and so, but notice that took something like a century and a half. Now, compare that to information technology. Just in my lifetime, as a small child, I was playing my mom's LPs of The Sound of Music. Um, I was, I, these were hers from the 60s, but I was playing LPs. Now, the young 
you that are under 30 don't know what an LP is. Maybe you do. It's a, it's a record now that there's a kind of, I know they come back, so they're, they're a bit retro. But I, I started with LPs, and then we went to 8-track tapes. My dad had a huge investment in 8-track tapes, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, which were displaced by cassettes. Uh, 8-tracks are terrible. You could hear the other tracks in the background. And then, of course, CDs. I haven't bought a music CD now in eight years. So, and what, so what's happened? What's happened is this movement we'll talk about in a, in a minute of digitization, in which we move from the world of atoms to the world of bits. So now we deal with music files, which are just little pieces of software with a physical infrastructure, but we don't actually bother embedding them in a physical medium in the way that we used to. That's just one thing that's happened just in the lifetimes of many of those in, in this room. So expect rapid disruption. That's a cost. Don't treat that. It's one thing to say, look, there are going to be new and amazing and better jobs available next year. If you lose your job today and need to pay your rent next week, that's cold comfort. And so I think what we need to do is focus on the genuine cost and get our minds off of these sci-fi scenarios about the rise of the robots. Focus on the disruption. Figure out how to solve that problem and don't spend all of our time worrying about Skynet coming alive. So the question is then, um, what, what is this economy actually like? How is it different? What are the sort of fundamental features of the information economy? Here's my basic argument. So what we want to do is we want to figure out what are the key properties of an information economy and then if I'm right that human beings cannot be reducible to machines, that will mean there is some leftover. There's something that's fundamentally human that's not reducible to the machine. We will delegate many of the things we were doing previously to machines. And then that will mean that we need to focus on whatever our comparative advantage is. That is, whatever it is that we can do uniquely that no machine can ever do. And so notice that this is both a kind of an empirical argument and also uh, a sort of philosophical argument. So let me give you just for a few minutes um, what I think the kind of key features, the main features of the information economy are. And if you, if you don't catch all this, that's fine. I'm just going to gloss over it so quickly that there's probably no way to, to do justice to it. But here's what I think uh, are the key features of the information economy. It's highly disruptive, which I've already mentioned. Its growth in certain sectors is exponential rather than merely linear. It's digital. It's hyper-connected. That's the one that you know intuitively. And it's ever more informational. So if we grasp this, this actually gives us a roadmap to figure out, okay, so what do we need to do with ourselves in order to, to maximize our own potential in this economy? You probably all know about Moore's Law. It's just one example of exponential growth. It's this famous observation uh, by Gordon Moore, who was a co-founder of Intel, though at the time uh, he was at Fairchild, Fairchild Semiconductor, and he noticed uh, just this weird observation that about every 18 to 24 months, the number of transistors that could be put on an integrated circuit doubled. You could think of this just as sort of the doubling of computational power every 18 to 24 months. So one, doubling, in other words, one, two, four, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. You see what happens when you have exponential growth. Things get out of hand very, very quickly. More of the time thought, well, this might happen for maybe 10 more years or something like that, and then we'll reach the physical limits. Ever since he made this observation, people have been predicting the end of Moore's Law. There's a guy named Ray Kurzweil who has kind of got some wacky ideas. He's, he's a sort of leading transhumanist, but he's also a very interesting thinker. 
Uh, he's actually a VP at Google now, so uh, watch out. But he wrote a book called The Singularity is Near. Now, I think it was about 2004, in which he argued that, in fact, there's this exponential growth not just across the economy, but he actually argues all the way back to the, the Big Bang and cosmic evolution and everything. He sees it everywhere. Um, uh, nevertheless, the most, one of the most interesting observations he did is he said, okay, let's look at Moore's Law across five different types of computation. So rather than just looking at the integrated circuits, the computer chips that we're used to, he traced it back a century in which a century ago, we've, we've used in the, in the 20th century, we use five different types of physical media for doing computation, all right? So completely different physical processes. And what he discovered is that this trajectory of exponential growth in Moore's Law has stayed more or less steady across five different physical substrates, which suggests, suggests it doesn't necessarily mean that it's some kind of immutable law, but that it's a trend that in a sense transcends the physical details uh, of the thing in which we're, we're doing. And I, I won't bore you, but Moore's Law growth actually is trivial compared to the growth that we're experiencing right now in things like storage. Uh, but just so you get an idea of cur that what the implications of this are, here's how Kurzweil put it in, in uh, 2013. He said, a kid in Africa with a smartphone is walking around with a trillion dollars of computation circa 1970. So I ran the calculations on this. So that would have meant that it would have taken $8.3 trillion to buy the same computing power you can get for eight cents in 2013. All right, now there wasn't $8.3 trillion at the time. That gives you, that's just exponential growth in the microprocessor, just in one place. Now apply that type of growth sort of across the information parts of the economy and you get an idea uh, about the ty type of growth that's possible. There's no Moore's Law in energy. There's no Moore's Law in real estate. This is in the information-dense parts of the economy. Second thing is that this economy is digital. Now, many of you may not even quite know what this word means. I know I didn't for a long time. Uh, digital basically refers to the language that is native to computers. So uh, if you think about digitization, think about it. This is how it's put in the literature as moving from the world of atoms, of molecules, of bodies, and computers, and cars, to the world of bits, to the world of information. Now, why does this matter? And the best example would be uh, the, 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 those forms of music, right, in which we moved from a time just a few centuries ago in which no one had ever even imagined that sound could be recorded and preserved. Even that idea would have been unthinkable a few centuries ago. To preserving perfectly recordings, right, in, in a sense, a kind of non-material state, in a purely informational state, that's digitization. Now, why does this matter? This matters because in the digital economy, things have a couple of very weird properties. And I'm going to give you these. This was going to be the third economic term. I promise I'm not going to use more than four economic terms tonight. Okay, so here's two. Um, is that digital goods are effectively non-rival, and they effectively have zero marginal cost. Now, what does that mean? Uh, what that means, think about it this way. Think about the, uh, an entire set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which you can still buy, by the way, an entire set. A, a, a set of Encyclopedia Britannica is a rival good. So what that means is that if I have it in my living room, you can't also have it. 
It's a zero-sum game. One of us can have it or the other. It's also a physical good, so it costs a certain amount of money to print cardboard and paper. It has to be stored. It has to be shipped and transported, those kinds of things. Now, you might do a million copies of them, right, to reduce the marginal cost, but every additional copy is still going to cost a good bit of money, and it's going to be a rival good. Now think about an online subscription to the Encyclopedia Britannica. If you get a subscription, $69.95, first of all, it's way better than the print edition because it's got video and it's hyperlinked, but you're not depleting the supply. iTunes isn't going to run out of copies of the latest song from whatever the most popular singer right now is, right? That's a non-rival good. It's, a, it's in a sense infinite. Of course, it's not literal. Of course, you have to have electricity and things like that. The other thing is that the individual cost at the margins is basically zero. Each additional copy costs almost nothing. So what that means is that the digital economy is very different from the kind of economy that economists grew up in in developing things like land, labor, and capital and using physical goods that are rival and have a particular cost for every additional copy. We go from a world in which economists think just almost entirely about scarcity to one in which you get this weird kind of abundance. And that does very weird things. So I think the, the economics of the information economy actually end up being somewhat different than pre. It doesn't mean the laws of economics are gone. It just means that there are these kind of weird properties. That's digitization. You know what hyperconnected is. Uh, I, I won't spend a lot of time on this. There's an interesting book by Kevin Kelly of Wired Magazine. Uh, and he's got a great line in this book. Uh, it's called The Inevitable, which tells you his, his perspective on these things. But he said, a thousand years from now, people will look back at this moment in which we live here at the beginning of the 21st century and think what an amazing and magical time it was. Because those were the people, we are the people that live at the very moment in which all human beings on the face of the earth will connect themselves to one thing. The majority of the human population already is connected, in a sense, at roughly the speed of light. That's the moment in which we live, and that itself is speeding up, for good and for ill. Right? Thank you, by the way. I see that no one has checked Facebook for the last 15 minutes, so you're very unlike most college classes that I've seen. But that's, that's the ill, right, is that we're constantly connected. That has huge social and moral and economic implications. And then finally... The information economy, obviously, is hyper-informational. So now you're wondering, what the heck is information? Turns out this is a really, really hard question. So let me just try to simplify it for you. If any of you have ever been to Victoria in British Columbia, it's a beautiful city. Uh, on, so this is the far uh, western part of Canada. And Victoria has a, a double harbor. It has an outer harbor if you take the ferry, say, from... Port Townsend into Victoria, do this in the summer, by the way. It's not that, that nice, actually, in the winter. It's very dark. Uh, but you move in to the inner harbor, and it gets very peaceful, And then, or the outer harbor. Then you move into an inner harbor in which you can no longer believe you're even on the ocean. It's so placid and peaceful that the, the provincial um, uh, sort of government building is right there. That's it, right by the water. And if you go there in the summer, you'll notice on the side... Uh, of the Inner Harbor, this kind of grassy knoll and something written there. It's actually really hard to see. So this is a nighttime image. If you look really carefully, you might notice some kind of red flowers. I'll make this a little easier. All right, if you come in in the daytime, you can see it, right? You see these flowers? They're right here. Welcome to Victoria. 
Right? So this is an one of an unbelievably immense number of possible arrangements of begonia seeds. How did you know immediately that that was informational? I mean, if you had to make an argument, right? You didn't do a calculation and say, okay, what's the probability that Canadian geese might drop seeds on their way south? And, you know, that's, that's a logical possibility. You didn't weigh this. You immediately discerned the activity of an intelligent agent of information there. What are you doing? What you're doing is you're picking out something. It, it, complexity is part of the story, or improbability. This is, a high, this is an improbable arrangement of seeds. But you know in a, a random assortment of seeds that the Canadian geese might have dropped? It's also highly complex or improbable. <laughs> but you wouldn't think, oh, that's, that's interesting. You, you, you just, it would be gibberish. It would be random assortments of seeds. What you're doing is you're discerning there's essentially a connection based upon a pattern of one intelligent agent to another. And would you see both a, a, a conjunction of complexity and what we can call a specification or an independently given pattern that has specific meaning? So you use your background knowledge. I'm in Victoria. You, you, you use your knowledge of English, right? You look at this. And so you immediately disregard all these kind of far-fetched explanations and you discern information. Right now, in, in the, the language of computer science, there's something called Shannon information, which do, ignores entirely the concept of meaning. And that's good. If all you're doing, if you're Claude Shannon, all you want to know, do is figure out, okay, how much, how much of a transmission can we get across a, a, a cable line or a, you know, a copper cable or a, a radio transmission? It, the meaning of the transmission doesn't matter. What you want to know is kind of how much information is in it. Can we compress it or not and things like that. So if I take a coin, a fair uh, quarter, and I flip it, you know beforehand it was a head, it could be heads or tails. I flip it and it's tails. That's one bit of information. Right? So, we, so information, what Shannon allowed us to do is to measure information. All right, so that text, actually, you can describe the number of bits of information in that as well. And it's based on the kind of background possibilities, spaces, and number of possible letters and things like that. But you know, if I randomly sort of rearrange those letters so they were meaningless, they would still have the same number of bits as they did before. So what that tells you is that the kind of information that Claude Shannon talked about in computer uh, theory is not robust enough to capture the kind of information we're actually talking about in the information economy. Now, if you followed me this far, you should see why the information economy is not going to be one that ultimately displaces human beings, human persons. It's going to be an economy that is uniquely fit for human persons because at its center is information. And the source of this type of information is uniquely intelligent agents. Intelligent agents have exclusive jurisdiction for creating this kind of information. So what that means is that we want to focus on the virtues that correspond to all these features of the information economy. So if you're, if you're wondering if you, have, if you have just graduated from college or you have a, a child or a grandchild in high school or college and they ask you how not to be replaced by robots, here's the answer. Focus on your comparative advantage over machines. And our, remember what I told you a minute ago is that the thing that distinguishes us is that we have freedom, we have the capacity to choose, we have first-person subjective experience so we can act purposively and deliberately. That distinguishes us for machines.
And so what that means, in particular, as John Paul said, is that we can make ourselves more than we were at the beginning. That's what a virtue is. A virtue is a habit that is deliberately chosen over and over. So it starts out as a conscious act of the will. I'm going to choose not to overdrink tonight. All right, I'm just going to have one beer or whatever it is. And then I choose to do that. And so it's a choice inside. It, it manifests itself physically in my body. I do that over and over. It becomes a habit. If I keep doing it, it works its way back into my being in a sense. I don't want to describe, I don't want to talk about humans as um, you know, as machines, but you could think about this as reprogramming yourself so that you become more than you were at the beginning. That's a virtue, a freely, consciously chosen good act pursued over and over until it becomes so habitual that it transforms who you are. So what are the virtues you most need in an information economy? You still need the basic virtues. I, I, I tell people, look, if you will just uh, not commit crime, graduate from high school, go to college or trade school, uh, again, don't commit crime, don't commit felonies, um, <laughs> wait until you're married to have kids and stay married, and you're not going to be impoverished. Oh, and show up on time. That's actually a biggie. Right? So those are still important. But the, the kind of key virtues in the information economy are these. The courage, anti-fragility, altruism, collaboration, and creative freedom. I'll just tell you, if you think about those five properties of the information economy, it's highly disruptive. That means you need the courage to be willing to act in the, in the context of failure. That's what courage is. It's the willingness to act in the context of failure. On the other hand, just failing over and over, whatever somebody might have told you, is not the key to success. Uh, what you need to be able to do is to learn from failure so that you're not just adaptable, you don't just survive it, but you actually improve as a result of failure. So you have the courage to act and to fail. And when you do fail, which is probably inevitable sometimes, you learn from it. That's what anti-fragility is, so that you become more than you were at the beginning. So this is, this is my platonic ideal of courage here. I can barely even look at that picture. It's so scary. <laughs> anti-fragility is what we do when we lift weights. right? It's not, we're, the human body and organisms are not, we're not rebar. We're not concrete that's really hard strong. In some ways, we can actually make ourselves stronger. So if you lift weights, you do it deliberately, you time under tension, and you do enough sort of stress on the muscle, you create an inflammatory response, you tear some of the muscle fibers, and then you eat right and you rest for a long enough time, your body rebuilds it stronger and bigger than it was before. That's anti-fragility. Now apply that to sort of the sort of experiments you need to do with respect to your career and to the things that you do in your life. That's the moral virtue you want to cultivate. Altruism. Now, why did, how does altruism correspond to anything? This corresponds to, to digitization. Altruism is simply acting for the benefit of other people. This has always been an important virtue to succeed in a free enterprise economy. You might have thought that it was selfishness if you read Ayn Rand in college. That is selfish. Now, a market can channel selfishness into beneficial outcomes, but actually, if you think about the butcher here, or the barista. Now, he doesn't need to visualize world peace or be thinking about how much he loves you. Nevertheless, to be a successful barista, he has to be willing to serve you, to figure out, anticipate what you want, and to give you something, to give you a good or a service, and to do it better, ideally, than his competitors. That's altruism. So that's always been important. It's ever more important, though, in a digital age in which we can create more and more goods and services that are non-rival. There are far more things that each of us can create now than could ever have been created in any other time in history. 
Collaboration is simply the virtue, it's essentially a virtue of humility. Collaboration is the virtue of being willing to learn from others and being willing to work with others. And in a hyper-connected economy, it's ever more important as a virtue. And then finally, this is the supreme virtue of creative freedom. Now, what's creative freedom? If you, I, I was talking to a confirmation class on Saturday. Now, I wasn't talking about this, obviously. This would be terrible, right, in a confirmation class. But I was talking to them about virtues. And I asked them what freedom was. And every one of them said, well, freedom is if you can do what you want to do. That's freedom. Uh, now, that's a, in a sense, that's free. If you go to the to ice cream store and you can choose chocolate or vanilla or strawberry, then that's freedom, right? So it's a, what philosophers call a freedom of indifference. You're not forced to eat strawberry ice cream. Nevertheless, that's a highly minimal kind of freedom. Now, think about a little girl whose parents buy her a piano. She's never had a music lesson. And then they tell her, look, you're free to go in there and play with the piano and do things. And so she sits at the piano and plunks on some keys once in a while. So in a sense, she's free. She can either plunk on the keys or not. But is she free to play Rachmaninoff? Is she free to play that really, really hard movement of Moonlight Sonata that nobody hears because it's so hard? No. How would she acquire that kind of freedom? She would only acquire that kind of freedom, again, through deliberate practice over and over and over, in which, in which she constrains the field of possibility to a very particular actuality and a set of skills right, that then allow her eventually not just to plunk keys, but to play music. That's creative freedom. And creative freedom, unlike the mere freedom of indifference, is about self-restraint. It's about channeling the millions of things that we could do into something that is actually of value to other people. And when you do that, you are likely to succeed in an information economy. Because it is ultimately creative freedom that is the producer of information that is of value. So that's why I think actually rather than thinking about human beings as being replaced by the machines, that we create, we should actually have a better perspective, a much more obvious perspective. It's amazing that in this era in which human beings can create remarkable machines that can do amazing things that people in previous generations might never have imagined, we're nevertheless tempted to attribute the creativity and agency that we have to the machines themselves. Well, where the heck did the machines come from? They came from us. So we're not just homo sapiens. We're not just the man of wisdom or wise man. We're Homer Faber. We're man the maker. We will make machines that can enhance our work. They will have costs and benefits, but there's no reason whatsoever to imagine that that will ever replace us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Richards. Um, we have about 15 minutes for Q&A, so if you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll bring the mic to you. Just be sure to hold the mic to your mouth. We are recording this oh, that's right. for a later podcast. Um, so who has the first question? Uh, thank you, Dr. Richards. A uh, question for you. So you were talking about the digital economy. Yes. Um, you said that there's almost no marginal cost. Um, so I'm curious about, especially if we think of... Um, kind of the creation of how economies happen, people find things that have value. If it's something that's maybe not necessarily physical, I think of things like Bitcoin. Right. Um, how do we then do we establish value? Is it something just that we posit upon the digital thing itself? Yeah. Or that the digital thing is a reflection of 
some physical thing that has a value, and so its reflection of that is where it gains its value. So, how, so I, there's behind this this huge debate about the nature of economic value, and so for a long time in the history of the West, there was this idea of the labor theory of value, which is basically said something's worth as much labor as it costs to produce it. Um, uh, Adam Smith kind of thought this. Ricardo more or less thought this. Marx certainly thought this. Hilar Belloc thought this. So a very common and kind of intuitive idea that is almost certainly completely wrong. Um, and so lots of things can be intuitive, you know, that, that are wrong. And so you can see why, if you imagine, think of two houses built by two different firms that are right next to each other, um, are exactly the same in every visible way from the perspective of a customer. But one took far more labor. Either the workers were you know, slower or something like that or inefficient. On the labor theory of value, one house should be worth more than the other, the one that put more labor went into. Uh, but obviously it's not. I mean, how would you determine how much the house is worth? The only kind of, in economic terms, um, the way you figure out how much the house is worth is by saying, okay, what are other houses going for that are like this. And so in other words, what you do is you have a market, a competitive market where people bid to try to buy it. And so the economic value is effectively what people in a competitive environment are willing to give up in order to acquire the thing in a kind of rule-governed situation, right? Um, another example would be, you know, in the labor theory of value, think of someone digging a, a ditch out in the middle of the desert by himself. He works his fingers to the bone. He's really working hard. He's not creating any economic value. Now, the same guy, move him a 1,000 miles to a back, backyard in Santa Barbara, and he's working for a construction company that's putting in a pool that's been, right, is getting paid for. Exact same labor has economic value. So what you want to do is say, okay, so what makes one of those valuable and the other one not? It's entirely a matter of what people value. Um, and so that's what economic value is. And so a thing has value not because it takes up space or because it, you know, it's a rival good. It has, it has value precisely if people value it for some reason. And so I would think, don't think of wealth as the material uh, sort of matrix in which wealth is often trapped, gold bars or land or money or something like that. Think of economic wealth as something like means to ends. Uh, and so the more means to ends you have uh, to, to accomplish certain things, then in a sense the wealthier you are. And so there's no reason to think we're going to run out of things to create. We are, now, on the other hand, if you think about it, think in the world of atoms, think about in the world of food, uh, we only need so many calories. So, you know, once you get, say, the wealth of, of Jeff Bezos or something like that, he could eat at the fanciest possible restaurant on the planet every day, right? And it would still be a trivial amount of his total net worth. Um, he could buy, you know, lots of cars, but he only has so much time. And so what happens is that you end up, uh, uh, let's assume that machines actually make people's labor more and more valuable so we can do less and actually produce more. Um, I don't think there's any reason not to think that that's going to continue to happen, but we're going to still have two key scarcities. Think about what these would be. Time and attention, both of which uh, we don't have control over time. It just grinds along for everyone. And then attention, right? Your ability to focus on something is a scarcity, and we're all acutely aware of how scarce that is. Those will continue to be scarcities. Um, but don't think of economic wealth, you know, or value in, in material terms. And it, yeah, that's, I think, the way to avoid that. It's a great question. So, oh, yeah, so, so I'm not in charge of the question, so she's, she's got the Rosemary has the mic. I'm, put my hands down. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by your comments about 
the human capacity to survive this information age. Yes. And, and in particular, I'm drawn to the concept of hyperconnectivity mm-hmm. and this massive information that we're faced with. And then the second to last slide you showed about, and I can't remember the exact caption, but the, the creativity piece. Yeah. And it, and it just strikes me, and I'm curious for your reaction or your, your comments on this, but it strikes me that one of our survival techniques is to choose, you know, we can't possibly keep up with a computer. Mm-hmm. We can't possibly keep up with all this information that's coming at us. Right. So I think, I think where we thrive is that we choose to focus on certain things, such as, you know, being able to do a Rachmaninoff uh, yeah. concerto or, what you know, yeah. uh, symphony or whatever on, on a piano versus trying to do everything. No, and, and it just seems yeah. like that might be a bit of a, uh, a survival strategy maybe for, for, for us as humans. Well, and we don't need to do everything. I mean, it's always been, this is the idea of comparative advantage, is that you know, two people or two countries, even if one country could literally do everything better than another country, it can't do everything. It doesn't have infinite power. And so it's better off looking at its uh, opportunity costs and then this other, say, this other country that's actually worse at everything has much lower opportunity costs, and so they focus on the one that's at, at the top, and they both end up better off. It's one of the most important insights, I think, from the entire field of economics. Um, but if you think about it, every machine we've ever made, we make machines because to, to do things, something better than we can do. We make a wheelbarrow because a wheelbarrow can carry more than I can carry on my own. Now, what we're doing, it's not doing it on its own. It's helping us to carry more. And the, the difficulty, I think, especially with robotics, is that we get the idea that it sort of becomes autonomous and independent of us. And, and I think that's mostly illusory. But that's the idea. And if you go even further and imagine that it becomes an agent who chooses on its own, then it's truly independent. And so that's why I think ultimately um, that debate about strong versus weak artificial intelligence is where it all is going to happen. Um, and I think, I think skeptics like me, I'm not a skeptic about technology, I just think this isn't true, should stake the claim and say this is not going to happen. Come up with investment strategies that don't buy the, the strong AI paradigm. Right now Google buys the strong AI paradigm. They're doing everything they can to create an AI. And I can tell you I know people in, in the tech economy that don't buy it. That has actual investment implications. It has actual economic implications. Somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. Either machines can actually become conscious. Um, that will have huge implications. Uh, or machines are machines, and they're not going to become persons just because we make them really fast and really strong. Thank you very much. Uh, you just mentioned the idea that, that this is inevitable. Uh, it, it would seem that they, quote-unquote they, want us to have that idea. Mm-hmm. So the, the question is, to what extent is that idea a self-fulfilling prophecy? Which, which idea? The idea that it's inevitable that... Uh, that machines will become conscious? Yeah. Or? yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this is... There's this sort of difficult question having to do with technological development, which is... In what sense can we stop it? I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book where I, I argue that there's all sorts of bad policies that can slow these things. You can, the government's perfectly capable of preventing there from being initial public offerings. There's a couple of really stupid regulations, so we have the power to do things. We could blow everything up with nuclear bombs. That would slow technological development, right? Um, on the other hand, there's a sense in which these things do sort of happen. Humans are involved. But they move along on their own trajectory. And so I do think, I think there's a temptation, I feel it myself, 
uh, and I think traditional Catholics feel this, is, okay, we, what, can I get off somewhere here? Um, is there a farm I can go to somewhere? Uh, it's like, well, yeah, for a couple of weeks until they find you, but that's probably not going to solve anything. And so I think that the, what, we should resist the temptation to this kind of, it's kind of the Luddite temptation to just say, you know, I'm just going to sort of get off. What we need to do is figure out what's happening. Uh, because trust me, there was someone complaining when scrolls were replaced by codexes. I'm sure there was some amazing theological argument about why scrolls were superior to the codex and why basalt tablets were superior to scroll, right? Um, and so there's always a curmudgeon, over 40, arguing about why this technology is the thing that's going to destroy us. And there's always a 19-year-old that just sees nothing but the benefits, right? I think that the, the mark of maturity is to be able to grasp both the benefits and the cost of current technology. But to do that, you first have to understand what the heck is happening. And so I do think there's a sense in which, because there are billions of people working on these things, uh, I expect Moore's Law to continue. I expect exponential growth to continue in the kind of information uh, sectors of the economy. Um, but there's certainly nothing inevitable about uh, about this idea that we're going to be replaced because it's ultimately a metaphysical claim. It's based on a metaphysical assumption, right? You can replace something. What does that mean to replace it? You're going to have to replace it in all of its particulars. But if we're talking about machines and we're not machines, it, it, one can't replace the other. It can replace or supplement things that we do. It can't ultimately replace us. Thank you. Um, great talk and everything, but you sound awfully optimistic as far as, I, as far as the way I look at it. Uh, if you go back 150 years ago, roughly speaking, around the planet, most people lived either in autarky kind of thing, uh, basically primary sector of the economy, if you look at the pie chart, if you will, you know, working in farms, whatever. And you go back maybe 70, 80 years in the U.S. and the West in general, that went down to about 40%. Manufacturing had grown to about 40%, roughly, right. you know. Okay, and then uh, and as... You know, we got more robots, more machines, and so on. More and more tasks have been taken over, so it takes fewer and fewer people to make the food and then to make the tangible goods that we use. Mm -hmm. Now, we can all do services. Maybe we can all massage each other in the back or something like that. But what I see is endemic and perhaps even increasing unemployment rates, especially for the younger folks as we see nowadays in Europe in particular and also here, I think, a lot. There are plenty of programmers, too, who are unemployed. And it seems to me, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I see more and more of our tasks being taken over, and so Say far... the last thing? I, our tasks being taken over. More and more of our tasks being taken over? Yeah, I mean, as, as mm -hmm. obviously, artificial intelligence is becoming wiser, if you will, and it, what does that leave us with? And I don't have the answer, and I'm, I struggle with that. I've been struggling with that for yeah. years. I just don't know what, you know... It's, I, I don't think that's right. I mean, I, I tried to sort of glance at that, and I talk about it in detail in the book, but um, if you think about tasks, the assembly line manufacturing job, that's 100 years old, right? So we treat this as if this is some kind of permanent platonic reality in which people work in an assembly line. Henry Ford invented that about 100 years ago. So there's nothing eternal about that. That is an artifact of a particular moment of industrial history, essentially. And so, yeah, those types of things get replaced. But like I said, every time a farm uh, piece of farm technology was invented, it made some farmers obsolete with respect to what they were doing. Now, if you think the only things we can do are uh, those two types of things, then yeah, I would agree with you. But I think that there are going to be many, many more things that we can do, including things that at the moment we can't imagine. I also do not think that... 
um, that even things like farming are going to disappear. I think what's actually happening is that let's just take farming. Okay, so imagine 10 years from now, um, we can, we've got drone, automated drone monitored hydroponic farms under tarps in the desert like they have in southern Spain right now, uh, making enough food without pesticides, right, um, to feed the entire world. And it's actually done in an almost entirely automated fashion. So there's one person in each of these 100,000 acre installments, all right? And so you've got food, right, uh, in, in terms of the total amount of our wealth, uh, it's, it's available to people, even the very poor people, right? Does that mean that no one is ever going to do farming? No. Now, that's what economists would predict. If you're thinking that economic growth is just about lowering the input and increasing the output. But then if that were true, you would predict in 1960 that as production and transport of coffee got cheaper and cheaper, right, coffee would become almost free. And yet if you come to Catholic University, students can get free coffee in the Priz. They walk across the street to the Starbucks Reserve and they buy coffee for $4.50. What's happening? What's actually happening is that as some things become very inexpensive, things that we were previously necessities, right, people's choices change. And so suddenly we're really interested in small batch beer. We're really interested in farm, farmers markets. We'll pay a lot more for that, right? And people have different arguments for why they do that. But I actually don't think it matters. What's actually happening is that I think different types of labor are getting preferred. So what I actually think is going to happen is that we will have an economy in which both of these things happen, in which you have both a growth of your, whatever you call it. I'm calling it the uh, bespoke labor is what I call it. But this kind of, the kind of growth in the artisanal economy, which you can call that labor, you can call it services, at the same time that the sort of production by things of robots, the price continues to go down. So that's what I think something like that's actually going to happen. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Richards. What are one or two good resources that you would recommend for being able to stay on top of what's happening in the AI development world? Absolutely. So there is a... Uh, a new center um, called the Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence that is a collection of uh, mostly Christian scholars, Catholic and evangelical, that deal with these that I'm involved in. Um, uh, and honestly, look at the the end notes of the book. Actually, just if you don't buy the book, look at the end notes because I send the sort of references there. But at the moment, it's a little bit of a frustrating debate because the literature is filled with people, all of whom basically presuppose kind of uh, utopian materialism. And so they're both, um, I mean, Ray Kurzweil, whom I referenced, is a leading transhumanist. And so he thinks, um, you can sort of think of this as Christian theology for the atheist. So what your eschatology, what you do is, rather than dying and you know spending eternity glorifying God and then getting a resurrection body, you upload yourself to some internet 3.0 and you have that type of immortality. That's where most of the discussion is taking place right now. I mean, I'm telling you, that's 95% of the discussion. And so the other half of the argument um, is represented by very few people. And part of it, I think, is that sort of kind of traditional conservatives are somewhat uncomfortable with this subject, and we do other things. We, I, you know, I'd frankly rather study Aristotle and Plato than, than study Moore's Law, right? I have my choice. Uh, but this is something that we have to grapple with, and so I think it requires that some of us devote our cognitive surplus to actually understanding it and interpreting it and writing about it. So at the moment, the, uh, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, unfortunately. All right, thank you. Thank you so much.